0: Her father was Irish. Her mother uh, was born in Germany. Uh, I remember when I saw Adenauer, he was very impressed by Pat, and he said to me, tell me her background. And I said, well, she's half Irish and half German. He snapped his finger and he says, that's the best combination of all, uh, German strength and Irish beauty.
1: And she's got both. Welcome to the Nixon Now podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroides. This week marks the 104th birthday of First Lady Pax and Pat Nixon. To discuss her life and legacy is Bob Bostock. Bostock served as a special assistant to former President Nixon, reading the writing and curating of most of the exhibits at the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. In 2012, he wrote and curated the special centennial exhibit at the Presidential Library about First Lady Pat Nixon. Bostock also has 15 years in senior state federal and local governments, including work as a senior advisor to New, New Jersey governor and later EPA chief Christy Todd Whitman. The two co-wrote the best-selling book, It's My Party Two, The Battle for the Heart of the GOP and the Future of America. Thank you very much, Bob, for joining us.
0: Thank you, John. It's great to be with you today, particularly to Mark, Mrs. Nixon, what would have been Mrs. Nixon's 104th birthday.
1: Right, this week, this week we celebrate uh, the birth of uh, Thelma Catherine Ryan, uh, later known as Pat Ryan, and then Pat Nixon when she married the future president. Why was she named Pat? And can you describe her family and upbringing?
0: Sure. Well, Mrs. Nixon was born late in the evening of uh, March sixteenth, 1912, in a miner's shack in Ely, Nevada. Her father, Will, and her uh, mother, Kate, uh, were living in Nevada. Her dad was a miner. He had had lots of jobs that had taken him all around the country and, and really all around the world, and uh, was mining there in Nevada. And uh, his family, she had two older brothers, they were living in literally a shack. And he was working that night, and when he came home the following morning, which was St. Patrick's Day, and was presented with his new daughter, he pronounced, This is my St. Patrick's Babe in the Morn. So he referred to her uh, through much of his life as Babe. Uh, But when he died, when she was 18, she took the name Pat because he had always referred to her, again, as her St. Patrick's Babe in the Morn, And he had always celebrated her birthday on the 17th of March, St. Patrick's Day, because he was a good Irishman. And uh, Mrs. Nixon was very proud of her Irish roots, and that's how she adopted the name Pat um during her during her youth she was known as babe to her um to her her father and her schoolmates called her buddy um that was that was uh, she never apparently liked the name Thelma, but um she was she she adopted the name pat after her dad died as i said kind of as a tribute to him and in and in a way to remember um how proud he was to have that new daughter and meet that new daughter for the first time on St Patrick's Day in nineteen twelve
1: and uh how did losing her parents at a young age affect her?
0: Well, it had a profound effect on her and her family um her Her mother had insisted that her her dad get out of the mining work. It was very dangerous work and and uh some of the miners that he had worked with had been killed in accidents and Now that she had three children, she didn't really want to have to worry about whether he was going to be killed in a mining accident. So when she was one, when Pat was one, they moved uh, to Southern California to Artesia and bought a farm, a small farm there. They lived in a small house, five-room house, no electricity, no running water, small farm that uh, uh, was basically the center of, of their life. And she learned about hard work as a very, very young girl. She would rise early in the morning before dawn, uh, do chores around the house to help out her mother, and then uh, would go to school. And then after school, she'd come and work in the fields um, doing weeding. And one of one of the tasks she had was uh, her, her father was known as the Cabbage King. Apparently, he was a great grower of cabbage. And one of her jobs was to pick bugs off of the plants and drop them in a container of kerosene. Uh, they weren't using pesticides in those days, or maybe they had them and they couldn't afford them, because it was a—it was not a, a huge farm. It was enough to provide for the family, but not a huge farm. So she learned from a very young age, uh, the value and the importance of hard work. When she was 13, uh, her mother, Kate, passed away, very tragically, leaving uh, Pat, really, as the woman of the house. Uh, she had said to her daughter, Julie, many years later, when my mother died, I just took responsibility for my own life. And she really took over the running of the house with her older brothers, for her older brothers, and her father. Uh, she would cook the meals. She would do the housework. She would do the ironing and the cleaning and all of the chores that have to take place around the house. And she'd do most of those before she went to school in the morning. And then again, when she would come home from school, farm chores, as well as everything that her mother used to do around the house. So her her mother's death at the age of 13 really had a profound impact on her because so much responsibility came to her at that very young age, and she she embraced it. And then when she was 18, her father died of tuberculosis, so she was orphaned by the age of 18. She had wanted to go to college. Uh, both of her older brothers had gotten athletic scholarships to the University of Southern California, but they wanted to retain the farm, so the three of them made an agreement that. One would go to college at a time, and the other two would work to keep the farm going. And then when one finished college, the next one would go. So instead of being able to go right to college after she graduated from high school, she continued to work. And uh, then when she was 20, she uh, had an opportunity to travel east. There was a couple who lived nearby who lived in Connecticut and had um, spent the winter in California, and they needed somebody to drive their car back east to Connecticut. So she got that job when she was 20. At the age of 20, she set off in this car, With this couple drove all the way across the country. This, of course, is in the uh, age before there were interstate highways and and uh, all of those sorts of things. So it was kind of a rough journey. But when she got to the East, she settled in New York and spent two years there before she came back to California
1: and and at that point was able to start college. And... You'd mentioned she went to the University of California, a time when not many women uh, went to school, especially uh university of that level. Uh, what did she study and what did she seek to accomplish there
0: That's exactly right when she um, when she went to the University of Southern California, only one in ten women in the United States was completing four years of college, so she went to u s c she studied business and uh teaching. And she did very, very well there, even though she worked all the way through college as she had worked basically all her life. Uh, She worked in a bank. Um, In the morning, she would clean the bank. In the afternoon, she would go back and help balance the books uh, between classes. She worked in a department store, uh, Bullocks, which was a famous department store in Los Angeles. She also had some work as a movie extra. But despite how busy she was working and studying and, and uh, as a research assistant, she also had a small scholarship that uh, was funded by her being a research assistant to uh, one of her professors. She managed to graduate with honors and um, from USC and with a degree in uh, business and in teaching. So she basically had two degrees, which she was able to acquire in four years, even though everything else she was doing was going on. So. Uh, It was uh, it was she was really way, way ahead of her time um, because, as I mentioned, only about one in 10 women uh, at that time went to college. And really, the vast majority of those women uh, across the country came from uh, affluent families who could afford to send their daughters to school. Uh, At that time, it was thought pretty widely that girls didn't really need an education because they were going to go on and get married and become housewives. But she was very ambitious. Uh, she wanted to um, make more of herself. She wanted to be able to uh, make a life for herself that didn't require her to depend on anybody else. So she went to school and, and uh, got that degree, which uh, made her very unusual and very much ahead of her time um, in the in the early 1930s.
1: and where did she where did she begin her career? Where did she begin teaching?
0: Well, she began teaching right after she finished school um, at Whittier High School in Whittier, California. Uh, she was uh, taught business classes like stenography and things like that. Um, very, very popular at Whittier. She was an incredibly uh, beautiful young woman. Um, everybody who knew her commented on her looks. Uh, she was young and vivacious, which apparently was a contrast to most of the faculty at Whittier High School in the uh, late 1930s. Uh, a real great addition to the faculty, and uh, we, we saw—I saw when I was working on the Centennial exhibit uh, back in 1912—letters from some of her students who commented on, um, you know, just how attractive she was, and boys would drive by her house, you know, where she lived, to hope to get a glimpse of her and things like that. So she was, uh, she was a very, very popular teacher, but also known for really, uh, really making the kids do their work. Um, she had very high and exacting standards for her students. Um, they were expected to work as hard as they possibly could and do the best job that they that they uh, that they could, because she wanted everyone uh, in her classes to do their very best and to succeed. I also uh, came across a letter that somebody had written her when she was in the White House as first lady. One of her students from Whittier High School who uh, commented that uh, she was she made her career. As a secretary, and was still using the stenography skills that that then Miss Ryan had taught her back at Whittier High School back in the late 1930s.
1: Oh wow! So yeah,
0: so she was she really made an impact on the students that she taught. It was very popular, but also very demanding. She she ran uh, she ran a tight ship in her classroom, and uh, really really wanted to make sure every single student was was reaching their maximum the potential.
1: And how did she come to meet Richard Nixon, future president of the United States?
0: Well, she was. as The faculty members at, uh, at Whittier High School were expected to kind of participate in things that go on in the community and to become part of the community. So she had uh, tried out for a play called *The Dark Tower* that a community theater group was going to be put on. Was going to be putting on. And when she went to the tryout of this for this play. Uh, there was a young fellow there, a young lawyer, who also was trying to build up the practice. He had joined a law firm in Whittier, and one of the ways young lawyers build up their practices is to get out and be involved in community events. And uh, that young lawyer happened to be a young fellow by the name of Dick Nixon. And um, he he would say later that he fell in love with her at first sight at that theater tryout. They both did get parts in the show, uh, appeared together on stage. Um, he fell for her, as I said, immediately. Uh, she was not quite so sure um she wasn't quite ready to settle down but uh young the young lawyer the future president uh, courted her with uh, great enthusiasm and and uh, energy over the course of a couple of years uh and finally finally she relented and agreed to marry him uh, one of the one of the things that i had the opportunity to do when doing that exhibit that you had mentioned earlier was read the love letters that um they would they exchanged during their courtship and the future president wrote very uh beautiful heartfelt letters that had an element of poetry to them and uh very emotive and and uh, really you know you could really see that he was making every effort to bring all of his rhetorical skills and sentimental skills and everything else to bear to to uh win her over she on the other hand was playing it a little a little coy for a while you know she she would, one of the letters I ran across uh, said, uh, you know, I understand you have a meeting tonight, but uh, stop by when the meeting's over and I'll burn a hamburger for you. They were much more lighthearted uh, during their courtship. His were very ardent and hers were much more lighthearted. Uh, but in the end, I think because they both shared uh, common uh, interests and common dreams, which was really to uh, make a mark on the world, uh, they came together and in June 1940 were married. And, and formed what would become known in later years as the Patent Dick team.
1: Just a year and a half later, December 1941, uh, Japanese forces bomb Pearl Harbor. And this prompts the young Nixon to, to join the war effort. Um, uh, he gets commissioned to the United States Navy and he gets deployed to the South Pacific. Um, you mentioned letters. There are also letters that show frequent communication while um, Richard Nixon is deployed. Can you can you describe that a little bit?
0: Yes, you know, it was when when the future president decided that he would join the service after after the Japanese attack on the United States at Pearl Harbor. It was a, it was a tough decision for his his family. His family and he were raised as Quakers. Uh Quakers uh, are essentially pacifists when it comes to war. They're not uh, conscientious objector. Well, I guess they would be called conscientious objectors, but their religion really was uh, was had a heavy emphasis on nonviolence. So his mother particularly was concerned when he joined the service. Uh, when he when he first joined the navy and was commissioned, you know, he first had some desk jobs, but he really wanted to go uh, out to where the action was, and and he prevailed to go out to the South Pacific. So when he went to the South Pacific, where he served for several years during the war. Uh, Mrs. Nixon was back home. Uh, She again went to work. She got a job in San Francisco uh, working for the Office of Price Administration, Uh, rose to as the only woman in supervisory positions in that job. She was very, very well respected by the people she worked with. And they were apart for quite a long time. And again, he wrote letters to her almost every day. And he would number the letters uh, because the mail, of course, from a war zone back home to the United States was unpredictable. So he would number the letters so she would know if, you know, maybe letter number 14 would come after uh, or or come before uh, letter number 10 might have arrived. So the letters were all numbered. And again, he wrote her uh, very romantic and um, very conversational sort of letters, telling her what was going on, but always making light of any danger he was in because he didn't want her to worry, uh, telling her how much he loved her and missed her. Uh, there was this one series of letters where he was asking her to send a, a recent photograph, and when the photograph came, uh, he wrote with a great sense of pride back home about when he showed it to all the men he was serving with. They all commented on how beautiful he was, and, or how beautiful she was, rather, and how lucky he was to have been able to win the heart of uh, such a uh, woman as uh, as Pat Ryan Nixon. So those those letters are also just very, very... Uh, romantic. Uh, you can tell how much uh, he missed her while he was away, uh, but also how concerned he was that she not worry. So even when there were air raids and stuff, he wasn't on the front lines in the South Pacific, but he was definitely in the war zone. And if there would be an air raid or something, he would describe it in the light lightest possible terms so that, so that she wouldn't worry about him while he was away.
1: In July 1944, President Nixon ends his final deployment in the Pacific, and when he comes home he settles back into the legal profession and is thereafter approached by Southern California businessmen about uh, a run for the Republican nominee against the Democratic incumbent Jerry Voorhees. Nixon accepts, but how did how did Pat feel about Richard Nixon's entry into politics?
0: Well, I think she was all for it. Um, they were, they were living on the East Coast. He was just finishing up his naval service, uh, closing out contracts, uh, because he was a lawyer, and at the end, of as the war was approaching, the government had a lot of contracts that had to be closed out, and after the war ended, even more contracts that had to be closed out. So he was kind of doing that work, um, and they were living in Baltimore when he got this, uh, when he was approached about running for Congress. And um, I think that, that both of them thought, you know, this this could be a fun adventure, and uh, and and I don't think it was necessarily on uh, his mind or on her mind, frankly, at that time. But when the opportunity presented itself, he he talked about you know how the two of them talked into the night about whether they should do it or not, and they both decided, yeah, let's give this a shot. So they went back to California, uh, resettled in Whittier. Uh, she would go on to her firstborn. Tricia was born in February 1946, just as the campaign was getting over, uh, getting uh, started. And uh, she threw herself into the campaign with as much enthusiasm and as much energy as the candidate himself. She did everything from you know licking envelopes and and addressing envelopes to handing out flyers and going to teas to talk about the candidate. Uh, she she worked her heart and soul out. Uh, even though she was a new mother and and uh, you know new to new to politics, she had I don't think envisioned a political uh, future for her husband or for herself by extension. Um, but as a measure of her f- support and enthusiasm for the idea, they f- threw all of their savings, ten thousand dollars, everything they had, into the campaign. And uh, as it turned out, which was uh, you know it was a campaign that uh, I think very few thought. Uh, the young richard nixon could win he ran against a five time incumbent who uh was very popular in the district but uh you know nixon the the tide was right for republicans in 1946 and nixon worked very very hard and and came from behind and ended up winning that seat with her right beside him and i think she found it she she was excited by the opportunity you know she had always felt she wanted to uh kind of see the world and and uh you know he he referred to her as her her uh as an Irish gypsy and a bit of a vagabond you know so it would be an exciting thing for the two of them and certainly when they got to washington uh after he was elected uh i think she settled right in and and was really enjoying the opportunity to to be a part of uh a larger to be a part of what was a larger role than than, uh, than she had played uh, in as a teacher and, and then working in San Francisco during the war. I think she was very excited by it. The two of them were. They became known very quickly as the Pat and Dick team because she was working as hard as he was uh, in that campaign, and everybody saw what an asset she was, not only politically, uh, in a way that very few political wives were at that time, but uh, also how much... Um, how much the future president, you know, relied on her uh, for, for moral support and for advice and everything else. They, they became a real political team in that campaign that, that existed all the way through uh, every other campaign they ran.
1: How did she, upon election, um, you had mentioned that she, she had Tricia in 1946, um, has Julie in 1948, the first uh, or the second year of uh, Nixon's tenure in, in Congress. Um, how did she adjust to life in congressional politics? Was, was she active at all in Washington life? Well, uh, let
0: me tell you a little personal story. The first um, summer that I kind of did an internship uh, with the former president at his offices in New Jersey, I, I uh, was given the task of fact-checking uh, the manuscript for his eighth book in the arena and one of the days i was there and and i had a, had a job lined up for the fall i was moving down my wife and i were moving down to washington i had gotten a job on capitol hill and one of the days when i was there mrs nixon had come to the office with the president so i was in my little office and and uh one of the secretaries came back and said oh mrs nixon would like to say hello to you so i I thought wow this is really neat So I went out and met Mrs. Nixon, and the first thing she said is, oh, Bob, Dick tells me you and your wife are moving to Washington. I said, yes, we're we're leaving in August. She goes, oh, you're going to have such fun. She said, but Dick and I first got in Washington. It was hard to find a place to live because there were so many people there after the war and there was a housing shortage, but we just had such a good time. The two of you are going to love it. So even though, um, even with all of the, the long hours he put in as a member of Congress, and of course, very quickly during his congressional career, leaping onto the national spotlight with the uh, the his case, um, her memories of that time as a as a young couple with a new baby were very very fond. Um, the one thing she and uh, President Nixon shared was they really really were interested in having kind of an exciting life where they got to see the world. He called her in some of the letters I spoke about earlier um, her, his Irish gypsy and refer to her as a vagabond, because she didn't want to spend her whole life in one place. She wanted to get out and see the world and travel the world and meet people and do fun things and exciting things. And I think that's how she saw the arrival in Washington. Um, of course, the pressure on them grew enormously when they got there, because by the end of his first term as a freshman member of the House of Representatives, he had leapt onto the national stage, as I mentioned with the uh, his case and uh, all of a sudden this obscure freshman congressman from a small farming district in southern california was on the front page of every newspaper in the country on a very controversial subject so very early in their political career she got a foretaste of what it was like to be in the spotlight and to uh, be in the middle of a swirl of controversy but through it through it all i think she always maintained her poise and her calm, and she always maintained her belief in what her husband was doing. Uh, she was a very, very strong and loyal uh, partner to uh, President Nixon at every single stage of his career. And while she did not necessarily love, I think, the political love, uh, she believed in him so strongly and that he really had so much to offer that uh, she threw herself into it wholeheartedly.
1: General Eisenhower had alluded uh, to the Hiss case um, after he chose uh, President Nixon, or I'm sorry, uh, Senator Nixon as his uh, vice presidential nominee. Um, and, and the political pressures kept coming. Uh, before the Republican convention in 1952, uh, Nixon came under attack uh, from opponents for having a uh, alleged secret slush fund. Um, he gave a nationally televised address repeating the tra- charges, and this is popular, known as the checker speech named after the Nixon family dog, um, which was a gift given to the Nixon children uh, by a prominent uh, businessman. In, in the televised speech, the camera cuts away at, at Pat a couple of times, um, and this obviously became one of the biggest challenges early on uh, when she came into the political limelight. Uh, how, did she, how, did she face, how did she face that? Um, did she um, did she drive Nixon at all? Did she uh, was she a voice of encouragement during this period of time?
0: Well, it was very very difficult because uh, Mrs. Nixon was was a private person, and uh, you know she didn't really want all of her personal things aired on national TV. But the but Senator Nixon, then you know who was then the vice presidential nominee, had been accused falsely of having this so-called slush fund that he used for all sorts of personal purposes. All it was was some money that some of his supporters had raised to allow him to take political trips um, and to send out, for instance, Christmas cards to his supporters instead of having the taxpayers pay for them. Some of his uh, contributors had a a fund that uh, paid for things like that, political expenses, which, uh, as it turned out, uh, Adelaide Stevenson, who was running against General Eisenhower for the presidency, he had a similar fund that was many, many times larger, and uh, he, in fact, did use it for (laughs) for some of his own personal expenses, but be that as it may. So uh, the the vice presidential nominee, Senator Nixon, knew that the only way he could save his spot on the ticket was to just lay out their entire financial history, which was really quite modest. And he did it. He went on into this speech, which uh, is popularly known as the the speech, although it was referred to among folks in close to the Nixon orbit as the fund speech, because it was about that fund, and uh, laid out everything he owned, everything he owed, everything he had, and Mrs. Nixon sat there beside him during this 30-minute telecast. Uh, she was not happy about the fact that he felt he had to do this, but she understood. And in fact, just before he was to go on, this was a live telecast out of a studio in Los Angeles. They were He was in the green room, just he and Pat. And he said, you know, I don't know. I don't think I can go through this. I don't think I can go through this. And she she looked him straight in the eye and said, Dick, you can do it. You can do it. And uh, he, he wrote later and uh, spoke later about the fact that her confidence in him at that crucial point, when he was feeling some doubt about his ability to go out there and speak to the entire nation, about things that were very very personal you know back then people didn't talk about money like everybody talks about all sorts of things now nothing's private anymore it's hard to remember that there was a time when people actually kept things in their private life private but she gave him the support that he needed to go out there and do it and uh, not to give up and to fight for his spot because she knew and she told him if you don't clear your name this is something that is going to haunt our family, including your daughters, for the rest of their lives. So he went out there. He gave the speech of his life. Um, it is probably still one of the most effective uses of television and politics. The F- Republican National Committee was flooded with mil- more than a million telegrams to Eisenhower saying, keep Nixon on the ticket. He saved his spot on the ticket. And of course, he and General Eisenhower went on to win a huge uh, victory uh, in the 1952 election. The first of uh, two elections that, I, that the Eisenhower-Nixon team won, but I think, in retrospect, that uh, that whole experience uh, left a bit, left kind of soured Mrs. Nixon on on politics. Um, it was, you know, it, it, I think that was a turning point in her life in terms of her view of the political arena. She never stopped supporting her husband. She never stopped carrying out her duties either as Uh, the wife of the vice president, later as the wife of the president, she went and did everything to the absolute utmost and to the uh, highest level of energy and excellence that you could expect of anybody. But I think that experience really had a—I think that stayed with her. It it took what was, I um, think—it took some of the excitement and, I think, some of the fun out of being in the political arena. And uh, and just gave her, I think, a, a, a view into uh, politics that that left a sour taste in her mouth. It didn't affect her ability to do her job, that's for sure.
1: Right. M- moving on to her um, her years as the wife of the vice presidential, or the vice president of the United States. How did she embrace her role as second lady?
0: Well, she embraced it with great enthusiasm. Um, The president and Mrs. Eisenhower were on the older side. In fact, I think when President Eisenhower was inaugurated, I think he was the oldest president inaugurated up until that time. And Mrs. Eisenhower didn't like to fly. So Eisenhower, very early in his uh, first term in 1953, uh, asked the Nixon's to undertake a lot of foreign travel on behalf of the administration. So literally, uh, before they were even like six months into their first term, uh, Eisenhower asked the Nixon's to go on essentially a round-the-world trip to um, show the show the American flag, if you will, in places in uh, Asia and Africa, particularly, uh, to show to uh, shore up our allies abroad, and to go to places that were countries that were neither our allies nor our enemies to help build relationships with these countries. You have to remember, 1953, um, the Korean War had just ended. Uh, president eisenhower had that cold the companies the countries in the developing world uh, many of them were trying to decide which side should i be on the side of the soviets or the or the side of the americans so the nixon's undertook in uh the fall of 1953 a 10 week trip they were on the road for 10 weeks they had their traveling entourage consisted of five people uh it was the two of them a military aide a secret service agent and uh and and Rosemary Wood's president's personal secretary uh, along with the air crew they were flying on propeller planes military planes all around the world not you know none of the modern conveniences that we ex- that our presidents and vice presidents have today an incredibly grueling uh trip with an exceedingly busy schedule and mrs nixon when she went to these countries and the vice president would be having meetings with the leaders of the countries Normally, on visits like this, the, the, the wife of the visiting dignitary would have tea with the prime minister's wife or something like that. Mrs. Nixon didn't want to do that. She wanted to get out and meet people. During that trip, during that 10-week trip, she visited more than 200 hospitals, orphanages, and schools in all of the countries that they visited, showing these people what really showing them, bringing America to them. Um, in a way that made a huge impression everywhere, everywhere she went, because she was really breaking the mold. She was way ahead of her time in this as well, not just going and doing the ceremonial things, which had been pretty much the model before then, but going out, meeting people, uh, seeing the conditions that folks were living in, showing them that the United States and the people of the United States were cared about them and were interested in their future. It made a huge impact on uh every single country she visited during that 10 week trip. In fact, when they got back, uh President Eisenhower went to the airport to meet them when they finally returned after 10 weeks on the road. And uh he, he said he said Dick, I've gotten great reports on you, but everybody loves Pat. <laughs> and uh <laughs> and it was just uh she she really uh earned on that trip a a title that stayed with her the rest of her life, ambassador of goodwill. She showed to the world a face of the United States that they had not seen before, of, of a people who are, who are genuinely and sincerely concerned about people in the rest of the world, particularly people who are living in countries that are, were struggling to develop, struggling to embrace freedom, and uh, struggling to advance. Um, and, and her concern was for what some people might call the average person, you know, she didn't. She wasn't going to the fancy teas and and dinners and all that sort of thing. She was she was where people were hurting in hospitals and orphanages and schools and and in, in uh, open air markets and things like that. So that the the man on the street, if you will, uh, could get a could could feel that they actually had a relationship with the United States because they had met Pat Nixon.
1: And uh, she would frequently uh, travel with the vice president uh, thereafter, including sometimes brushes with. Danger, as we saw with in Caracas, Venezuela, in 1958, when they were
0: yeah, they had yes, President Eisenhower had sent the Nixon's to South America to shore up some of our relationship with with several of the countries down there. And uh, again, as I mentioned, this is during the Cold War. The developing countries in South America, there was a tug of war going on. Were they going to be on the sides of the Soviets and on the Communists, or were they going to be on the sides of freedom in the United States? So the Nixons went to uh, several countries in South America, and there were some some reports as they were traveling. They had some trouble in Peru with communist mar- mobs, and there were reports that when they got to Venezuela that there were some uh, communist mobs waiting there to disrupt their schedule. Well, it was like nothing anybody had ever seen or expected. I don't think there's ever been uh, a dignitary from any country who has been subject to the sort of danger that the Nixons were were subjected to when they arrived in Caracas. Uh, when they arrived at the airport, there was a, a welcoming ceremony, and uh, the way the, the ceremony was set up, there was kind of this like bridge, over where they were standing, and there were people up there. As and as the Nixons stood attention while the national anthems of the two countries were played, people were spitting down on the Nixons and hurling insults and uh, shouting and uh, shouting, you know, Nixon go home and death to Nixon and everything else. Well, they endured that very stoically, didn't, you know, stood there at attention during those national anthems, then got in their cars to go to their first stop. And the Secret Service had gotten some intelligence that one of the places they were going, there was a mob waiting for them. So they avoided that spot and and drove in. But before they knew it, one of the roads that they were traveling on was uh, barricaded and the motorcade came to a complete stop. And President Nixon, or then Vice President Nixon, was in one car, and Mrs. Nixon was in the follow-up car with the wife of the foreign minister of Venezuela. And the crowds came with rocks and bats and sticks and started pelting the car with uh, stones, uh, breaking the windows. And then they started to uh, push the cars, trying to push them over, because one of the techniques they use is you flip a car on its side or upside down and then light it on fire this this mob was out to kill the Nixons. There's no doubt about it. The Nixons stayed cool. The Secret Service was with them, although only one Secret Service agent in each car, believe it or not. Um, Mrs. Nixon, the, the Vice President's military aide, Don Hughes, was in the car with Mrs. Nixon. Mrs. Nixon stayed completely calm during the whole event. Don Hughes, general who would later become a general, Air Force general, said he'd never seen such calmness in, in such a violent situation. The wife of the foreign minister was uh, hysterical. Mrs. Nixon calmed her down, and eventually the barricade was broken through, and the cars were able to escape before um, they were injured or even killed, which was the which was the goal of the mob. It was an appalling situation, a situation fraught with danger, uh, but the Nixons conducted themselves with enormous dignity and restraint during that whole event, and interestingly when they got to uh, where they were going to be staying, you know, the program for the afternoon was called off because of this. They got to where they were staying. I think it was the U.S. ambassador's house. And when they got out of the car, Mrs. Dixon, instead of like shaking with fear or anything, she was angry. She was angry that such a thing had happened to representatives of the United States of America, not because it was an attack on her and her husband, because it was an attack on on our country. And and she was she was just angry about it and not fearful. Well the first thing she did of course was go inside, call home to talk to uh Trisha and Julie and let them know that they were okay. But she she went through that incredibly dangerous and frightening experience with great uh sense of calm and uh dignity that made a huge impression on the rest of the world. Um and when they got back home to Washington after that trip uh, again, Eisenhower greeted them, a huge greeting, and uh, a motorcade through the city back to the White House with people lining both sides of the street uh, cheering the Nixons on for, for the way they conducted themselves and the way they represented our country in that very dangerous
1: situation. Stepping back into the fire of presidential politics, uh, was, she, was she at all an active campa- campaigner in the 1960 race against Senator John F. Kennedy?
0: Oh yes, yeah. she she campaigned as hard as he did. Uh she accompanied him on most of uh most of the campaign swings. Uh back then uh, first ladies didn't or future first ladies, but the wives of presidential candidates uh, tended not to have their own schedules, so she accompanied him uh on virtually every campaign trip and he visited all 50 states during that campaign. He made a pledge during the convention that he would do that and he did incredibly grueling campaign um and she was there every step of the way and she was uh you know she was very very popular there's a whole host of you know uh, political buttons from that campaign that say pat for first lady and uh because people really really liked her and admired her um and not only for the service she gave it to the nation as the wife of the vice president but also for uh, the family she was raising she she was one of those people that everybody saw was uh, incredibly energetic, always poised, always um, doing, putting her right foot forward, and someone you could really admire. In fact, in later years, she was for more than twenty years one of the most admired ma- uh, women in the in the world, and uh, you know, part of that was the way she worked so hard during that nineteen sixty campaign. There, there, she traveled as many miles as the vice president did, and and was as instrumental, I think, in. Uh, his his almost beating uh, Jack Kennedy in that election.
1: A devastating loss as it was. Um, in 1962, um, Nixon decides he wants to run for governor of California. Did did she want him to run?
0: You know, she didn't think it was the best idea. Um, she She didn't really want him to run. But, uh, again, when he did – and, you know, her political instincts on that were right, because that campaign was not a success. Um, in fact, after, after he lost in that campaign, ABC News uh, ran a, put on a program called the Political Obituary of Richard Nixon. Um, she did not want him to run. But, again, once he decided to do it, she jumped in with both feet and worked as hard campaigning up and down the state of California as he did. And um, I think it was, you know, it was, again, very difficult, I think, for her, as it was for him and the family to have lost that second election in a row um, in the space of two years to lose the presidency and then the governorship of California in the space of two years was really tough. Um, So, no, she wasn't for it. But once he decided that's what he was going to do, she worked as hard as if the whole thing had been her idea in the first place.
1: In his memoirs, Nixon talks about moving the family to New York after the defeat in California. He says, I quote, I was reluctant to uproot Pat and the girls again, but since the election in California held much less charm for them, and I found that they were quite excited by the prospect of living in New York. How did Pat and the family adjust to life in New York?
0: Uh, They adjusted very, very well. I think that Mrs. Nixon particularly uh, was happy to be out of the spotlight happy to have a private life back, and I think that uh, the, the, their daughters felt the same way. You know, they both went to school in New York and then, of course, went off to college. Julie went off to Smith in, in Massachusetts, and she went to school in New York City. Uh, but I think Mrs. Nixon was very, very happy for that interlude, what turned out to be an interlude in New York. Um, she had been, as I mentioned earlier, to New York when she was a young woman uh, and had spent two years in New York and loved New York. And uh, being able to come back there out of the glare of the spotlight and able to enjoy uh, privacy, uh, you know, a, a, a much more normal life, I think, during those years in New York City uh, was a time that uh, she really, really enjoyed. And I think the fact that when they when they left California after uh, he left the White House and, and they decided to move back east from San Clemente, um, the fact that the first place they landed was – New York City, uh, where they bought a townhouse, where they lived for a year or two when they first came back east. Um, again, reflected uh, the, the, I think, the very happy times she had in New York. She she liked the city. She liked to be able to go to shows and and be with friends and and uh, you know help out. She actually helped out at the law firm. You know, she'd go in and uh, help answer the phones and stuff and and uh, things like that. So the time those years in New York from uh, late 1962 until 1968, when he was elected, I think were very, very happy times for Mrs. Nixon.
1: By the mid-1960s, the vice president um, was re-emerging as a political figure and becoming a front-runner uh, for the uh, presidential election in 1968. Um, aware of his ambitions for the high office, did, did she, was she more comfortable um, for a presidential run during this period of time?
0: Well, I think, again, you know, I think that she really, she was very, very happy in New York being out of the spotlight. And I don't think she relished getting back into the arena, as he would put it. Uh, But again, she believed in him, and she believed he had a lot to offer the country and a lot to offer the world. And she was right in that estimation. And I think that she felt that, You know if this was something he felt called to do and clearly he did feel called to do it she was not going to stand in his way i think if he had not run for president again in 1968 i think she would have been perfectly happy with that decision but again once he made the decision she was in it all the way uh she jumped in with both feet she worked incredibly hard during that campaign and uh you know supported him every single step of the way because she believed in him and she believed in the good he could do for our country and the good he could do to promote peace in the world. Uh, she knew that, that he was uh, a man of destiny, if you will. And uh, she saw her role in part to support him as he, he met the, the, fate, the destiny, I guess, that fate had in store for him. So she was with him all the way, yeah. But again, I think if, if he had decided not to run and they had stayed in New York and he had continued to practice law, I think she would have been perfectly content with that life.
1: Moving on to the presidency and her years as First Lady, um, all First Ladies have a project. Uh, the late Nancy Reagan took on the Just Say No to Drugs campaign. Uh, Laura Bush was all about higher uh, education. Uh, what, what was Pat Nixon's project?
0: Well, you know, she resisted at first the idea of getting a "quote unquote" project uh, because there were lots of things she wanted to do. Getting pushed by her staff and by the president's staff over in the West Wing, you know, you've got to have a project here, you've got to have a project. And she once said famously, "You know, people are my when when the reporters, what what is your project going to be?" She said, "People are my project," and what she meant by that are a few things. Um, she used the Office of First Lady to promote volunteerism. She believed very, very strongly in the ability of of people being able to help other people that that individuals lending a helping hand to those who need it can make a powerful difference in the world. So she spent a lot of time as First Lady doing uh traveling to places local places, in the inner cities and places like that, in, in in impoverished areas where there were volunteer organizations making a huge difference in the lives of their neighbors and of their communities. So volunteerism was one of her projects. But there were so many other things she did, it's hard to buttonhole her, and, and she never gets enough credit for it because she really wasn't looking for publicity. For instance, you know, and most people don't don't know this. She was committed to expanding the um, White House collection of antiques and historic uh, furnishings and art uh, from what it was. When the Nixons arrived at the White House, only a third of the White House furniture were period antiques that reflect the history of the country. When they left just five and a half years later, um, two-thirds of the White House collection were important antiques that reflected the history of the country. Um, More than 600... Uh, pieces of furniture art decorative pieces were acquired at mrs nixon's initiative and energy during her time as first lady more than any more than any first lady before or since in fact Clem Conger, who was the curator of the White House, said uh, years later that Mrs. Nixon did more for the White House than any other first lady with the possible exception of Dolly Madison, so she made a huge difference in in bringing the White House up to showcase the place that it is today. She also was really committed to making sure that people had a chance to visit the White House and, and get a sense of the history of that place. She remembered the first time she had been in the White House as the wife of a new congressman in 1947, when the Trumans had a reception for members of Congress and uh, just how exciting and awe-inspiring it was for her to be there and and kind of never imagining that she would ever be to the White House and wondering if she'd ever be there again. So she made huge efforts to open the White House to more people and not just, um, you know, regular folks, but, for instance, she uh, had them design a special uh, tour for uh, people who were visually impaired that included... Um, audio tour as well as instructing the guards and the docents on tour to let let folks who were visually impaired touch some of the furnishings and, and the drapes and some of the furniture so they could get a sense of what they were seeing. She had ramps installed in the White House for the first time so that it would become handicapped accessible. She had the White House guide printed in a whole variety of other languages besides English so that visitors from around the world could read about the White House in their native language. She started the garden tours. Twice a year, the gardens and the grounds of the White House are open to the public, once in the spring and once in the fall. They still do it. It's been going on ever since she started it in 1973. Um, She initiated Christmas candlelight tours in the evening so that people in the Washington area who were working during the day could come and see the White House during Christmas at nighttime. Uh, Their first Thanksgiving in the White House, they hosted um seniors from nursing homes and, and retirement homes all around the area. They had Halloween parties for underprivileged kids. Uh she did all sorts of things to make the White House more accessible to uh people. In fact during their presidency the White House was visited record numbers by one and a half million people a year went through the White House when the Nixons were there. She was also responsible for lighting up the White House at night. It had never been lit at night. She was she she raised the money to uh, get the White House lit at night, uh, made it kind of a, a secret project, and uh, one night when she and, and the president were coming back from Camp David in Marine One, um, just as they were getting close to the White House, it, it was time so that the lights went on in the White House and the president saw for the first time the White House lit at night, and uh, that that was her project. So in so many ways, as, as she said, you know, people are my project. And everything she did as First Lady was designed to show her care and concern and connection to people. Another thing she did was she answered her own mail. Um, when I was when I was a teenager, I was a, uh, a big supporter of the President, Mrs. Nixon, and I still have um, uh, a picture that I had written to her and asked for an autographed picture, and it wasn't just something that was printed off. It was written in a ballpoint pen you know, to Bob Bostock with Best Wishes from Pat Nixon. I still have it at home. And when I got to know her handwriting, uh, working on the uh, Centennial, I got to see, gee, she actually wrote that <laughs> And, you know, I learned that she would reply to her own mail. And uh, she got hundreds of letters every week, and she saw everything that went out. And she signed every letter that went out. She didn't have an auto pen used because she felt that if somebody took the time to write to the First Lady, they deserved her personal response back. So when she said people are my project, that's what she meant. She loved people. She loved to meet people. She loved to hear their stories uh, and, and to just really connect with folks in a way. And she knew, because she had experienced herself, how special it would be for people to be able to come to the White House or meet the First Lady. And she was always very conscious of the fact that when someone did come to the White House or have a chance to meet her or the president, that it would be a very, very special uh, experience for those people. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, the first time I met her, when you know, she immediately put me at ease and said, you know, oh, you and you, Mary are going to have a great time in Washington. Dick and I loved Washington when we first got there. She just had an amazing way of connecting with people. And it's one of the reasons she was on the most
1: admired list for two decades or more. She really knew how to connect with people. You had, she liked them. You had mentioned that uh, the president uh, tapped her to be uh, his ambassador of goodwill. Um, you know, she, she goes to China and she's donning the with the president. She dons the the red coat. Um, she went on many foreign trips as as first lady. Uh, what was what was the role that the president um, wanted to designate for her, or did she have did she initiate any of uh, a role on her own as as, as the president's ambassador?
0: Well, there were some of uh, both. You know, when she traveled with the president, uh, she did a lot of the same things that she had done when she was the wife of the vice president. Get out and meet people where they were in orphanages and hospitals and schools and marketplaces. You know, again, not just sitting around in some palace having tea with somebody, but really getting out and meeting the people. Um, And she was an enormously effective ambassador for the United States in that sense. Uh, you mentioned the China trip, you know, when she arrived and was wearing that red coat, uh, which the Chinese noticed immediately because, you know, we had their the color of their flag was red, and, and it was a sign of, you know, a way of her sending a signal to them of, of respect, I think. And, uh, you know, getting out and, you know, she went into the, when she'd go to a hotel, she'd go back into the kitchen to meet the chefs and see how they were preparing food and things like that. When she went to the zoo, uh, the Peking Zoo, where she saw the panda bears, that eventually led to the United States getting two pandas from China. You know, she was there with the tourists and the and the workers and and uh you know, she there were some pigs there and she wanted to touch the pigs and, and somebody said oh stay away from the pigs. She said I grew up on a farm. I know about <laughs> pigs. <laughs> um, so when she was with him she was doing the same sort of thing. But the president also um gave her responsibility of representing the United States in an official capacity at um at a number of events. In fact, she was the first first lady to uh, be designated the official representative of the United States, of the president of the United States, at uh, some foreign events. Uh, she went to Africa, um, in uh, to Ghana, of uh, representing the president at the inauguration of the president there. She uh, traveled to South America in the same capacity um, as the official representative of the president of the United States. And um, you know, was out on her own, traveling as well. During her time as, as first and second lady, she visited more than 75 countries around the world, representing our country, and uh, did so with such dignity and such grace and such warmth, and with a, a genuine sense of uh, friendship and care for the for the places she went. Uh, she was really she was really remarkable in her ability, as I mentioned earlier, to connect with people, and to uh, show them. Uh, the best possible face of the United States everywhere she went and uh, and represented the president um, or the vice president during those years. She she um, was, her, you know, I'd love to, we saw one of the things we saw during when I was pulling together the her centennial, exhibit, it was one of her passports. And it had more stamps in it than you could possibly imagine. I mean, every page was uh, filled with stamps. From the country that they had visited, and uh you know that was just one of the, the many she must have had during the course of, uh, of her services uh second and first lady
1: after resignation um, in the aftermath of that how how did she spend uh, those post white House years
0: well when the when the nixons went back to san Clemente um after the president resigned in uh, on august ninth uh, of nineteen seventy four um the two of them together, I think, were, were, you know, it was a very tough time, I think, for both of them. And, and they were very supportive of each other uh, mutually. And uh, when, the, when the then former president got very ill towards the end of, of the year, 1974, almost lost his life, uh, she was right there beside him. And, in fact, he recalled uh, in one of his later books how when he was in the hospital and they weren't sure he was going to make it, Uh, She was there holding his hand like she had, and he talked about it in this way, like she had before that checker speech, you know, you can make it, Dick. You can make it. So she stood by his side um, every step of the way. But she also enjoyed, I think, uh, her time outside of the arena. She enjoyed, I think, getting her privacy back. Uh, She didn't give a single interview after she left the White House. Uh, The only public appearance she made from 1974, after she left the White House, until she passed away in 1993, was the dedication of an elementary school in the town she grew up in, in uh, California. Uh, That was the only speech she gave. Um, You know, she made some public appearances, obviously, at the opening of of, uh, the Nixon Library, and, of course, she was at the opening of the Reagan Library. But she really enjoyed, in those post-presidential years, I think, having her privacy back. Uh, being able to spend time with her family. And, of course, she had grandchildren uh, eventually in those post-presidential years. She loved spending time with her grandchildren and uh, just really enjoyed um, having, having, that, having privacy back and being able to live outside of the spotlight. One of the things I found uh, so touching when uh, the, the time I spent working with uh, President Nixon uh, on and off during the last five years of his life is You know, he'd go home every day and have lunch with Mrs. Nixon. And uh, it was so clear to me, as I mentioned that story the first time I met her, and she said, oh, Dick tells me you're moving to Washington, that, you know, when he'd go home just like any other devoted couple, they'd talk about what was going on in the office and this, that, and the other thing. They were very, very close in those years. And they were very close, I think. You know, they get a bum rap because they were of a generation that did did not believe in public displays of affection. You know, now if you're not hugging and kissing and, and, you know, all that sort of holding hands and everything else, uh, people think that you're distant from one another. That wasn't their way. Uh, they didn't believe in showing in public things that you would do in private. But one of the neatest pictures I've ever seen of the two of them, and I actually only ran across it when I was working on that centennial exhibit, was at the 1972 Republican National Convention. And the president had just given his acceptance speech for his renomination for, for president for re-election. And there's this great picture taken behind them and above, looking down as the two of them are standing together, waving to the crowd. And below the line of the, of the podium, you can see the two of them holding hands. They weren't doing it for the crowd. They were doing it for themselves and nobody in the hall could see it but they had their hands their, their their uh their two hands clasped together as with their other hand they waved to the crowd that was celebrating the president's renomination and to me that picture said so much about their relationship that you know even in the midst of the the white hot spotlight of the political arena having just accepted renomination for president of the United States and the two of them are out there accepting the adulation really of the crowd down there behind where anybody could see the two of them were holding hands and mutually supporting each other at that moment not for the public consumption but for themselves together and to me that's that is one of the best pictures i've seen of the two of them because it gives us a window into their relationship that I think they kept very private because that's who they were as people. They weren't into public displays of affection, but it was clear to me that the two of them um, were devoted to one another, believed in one another,
1: were proud of one another, and loved each other very, very much. Pat Nixon passes in June of 1993 and uh, at the funeral at the Nixon Library We see President Nixon, in a way we've never seen him before, uh, devastating, um, crying. Um, How did her passing ultimately affect President Nixon? Uh,
0: You know, I think it was devastating for him. Um, They had
1: celebrated their
0: 53rd wedding anniversary just before Mrs. Nixon died, Um, literally days, maybe a day or two before. They had been through so much together, you know, as... uh, as he would put it, you know, the highest mountaintops and some of the deepest valleys, but they were they were a team. They were the Pat and Dick team, and they had been ever since they they were married. And I think that um, I think that her loss was just devastating to him. And and he continued to work. You know, he he broke down at her funeral in, in in a way that you know nobody people were shocked by it. I think if they had known how close they were, they wouldn't have been shocked. But it was shocking because he had never displayed that level of emotion in public. He was very, very controlled when he was in public. He felt that's how leaders should conduct themselves. Um, So he continued on. You know, he continued to travel and write and everything else. But less than a year later, he passed away himself. And, um, you know, I I can't help but think that, uh, you know, that that quote he read from Theodore Roosevelt when he spoke to the White House staff on the day that he left office, that when his heart's dearest died, he thought the light had gone from his life forever. Well, you know, he, he was making that point in that on that day that he left the White House to let everybody know, you know, there's still life ahead of you. But I think when Mrs. Nixon died, I think in a very real sense, he felt what what T. R. felt when his wife died at a young age that that uh, the light had gone from his life forever. And he continued to work. He continued to travel. He continued to to be productive, enormously productive. Um, but I think, I think a big part of that light had gone out from his life forever. So when he died less than a year after she did, um, I think in a way that too was a, a sign of, of how much he missed her and how devoted he was to her and, um, the empty spot she left in his life when she did pass on.
1: Thank you so much, Bob, for your time. Jonathan, it's my pleasure. Um,
0: Mrs. Nixon was a great lady, uh, one of the great ladies in the history of our country. Uh, She served our country with such dignity and with such grace and gave so much of herself to our country that she has earned, um, I think, the gratitude of every American, not only those who um, lived during the period that
1: she served, but all of us who have have come after that time and, and for generations to come. Indeed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For news and information about the life and legacy of President Nixon, please visit us at nixonfoundation.org. For the Richard Nixon Foundation, I'm Jonathan Mavroides, signing off.